<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In Episode 3, Just Science interviews Martin Novak, a computer scientist with the National Institute of Justice, about digital evidence in the United States Court of Appeals. Digital evidence has the capacity to identify suspects, win acquittals, and obtain convictions. Whether through cars, smart homes, cell phones, personal computers, analysts are able to collect a staggering amount of data during the investigation of a crime. Martin Novak is currently studying the application of digital evidence in the courtroom. Listen along as he discusses his current research goals and the role of digital evidence in the Court of Appeals in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Mike Planty. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Planty, with NHA's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Here to help us today with the discussion is guest Mr. Martin Novak. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. Thank you. Martin is a senior computer scientist with the National Institute of Justice, NIJ. Uh, since 2004, he has managed NIJ's digital and multimedia evidence research and development portfolio. His research interests are in science and law, developing solutions for technology-facilitated abuse, and research on digital evidence collected from darknet investigation. Uh, Martin has authored several articles on digital evidence, including the topic we'll discuss today, digital evidence in the criminal cases before the U.S. Court of Appeal. So, Martin, what was the impetus for your study on looking at criminal cases in the Court of Appeal? Well, you know, really for as long as I have managed this program, there's been mostly anecdotal, right, of what I've heard from the field that digital evidence works in court, prosecutors love it, et cetera, et cetera. But I've never really seen any study to demonstrate how well does it actually do in court? Does it stand up to appeal? And the challenges with digital evidence are are unique in many ways compared to other forensic sciences, right? You know, in, in part, yes, but they still have to meet the same standard of evidence as any other kind of evidence introduced at trial. If we try to make it more than it is, I think that's where you can get into trouble. But if you treat it like any other evidence, it still has to be authenticated. It still has to pass Daubert. Yes, it does have some unique challenges. I see that more on the obtaining the the evidence and analyzing it. The courts seem to have come to an understand a fairly good understanding of digital evidence, its value. Great. Yeah. So tell us, uh, you mentioned in your um, article highlighting two cases that uh, really showcase the use of digital evidence. The first one was the Ross Harris murder. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I wanted to give the readers a little bit of introduction on the notion that digital evidence can and has the potential to identify suspects, win acquittal, or obtain a conviction. And I thought these cases were interesting and 
fairly representative of what I, of what I was trying to uh, show. Ross Harris was charged with two counts of felony murder and the death of his son. And it, it, the investigators were puzzled as to why this seemingly loving father would murder his child, because nothing on, on the face of it screamed why. And so once they did an examination of his computer, mobile devices, et cetera, et cetera, it led police to discover the motive. Apparently, he had been uh, sending text messages back and forth and having an affair with a 17-year-old high school student. His online searches included uh, how to survive in prison. The examination of his devices also indicated that he had been sexting with several women aside from this teenager while his son was dying in the overheated car. Needless to say, this evidence was fairly damning against him, um, and he was eventually convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to life without parole. In the next case you discuss is the Casey Anthony murder, and these cases actually go beyond using digital evidence to demonstrate that someone was at a, a certain time or place, but it's really getting into demonstrating intent or premeditation. Right, and you know, I, I thought the Casey Anthony case was was interesting because I mean it's it's a fairly well well known case, right? In this instance, it was a matter of who was searching for the word chloroform a total of 84 times on a computer seized from the house. Uh, With the tools at hand and with the results that they got, it just was not enough to convince the jury that it was, in fact, Casey Anthony doing those searches. And unfortunately, that was a, a huge part of the prosecution's case, was the premeditation of killing her daughter, Kaylee. Yes, and both of those cases highlight law enforcement, and the prosecutor's reliance on digital evidence to establish this intent. So this kind of sets the framework for your current research with digital evidence in the courtroom. Tell us about the purpose of, of your current study. So I wanted to determine what the most common legal basis was for appeals related to the introduction or exclusion of digital evidence, uh, the frequency with which cases involved in an appeal regarding digital evidence was either affirmed or reversed for the defense, and uh, whether certain challenges to digital evidence are more prevalent than others, and whether there were trends um, or areas of the law um, as applied to computer forensics and any related issues that needed uh, further attention. And so the methods you use were to um, go to the Court of Appeals, right? And the Court of Appeals are unique in terms of understanding this problem. Yes. Well, one of the reasons why I went with the U.S. Court of Appeals is, first off, there's 11 of them, right? And they, they mm-hmm. represent uh, the entire United States. And they all adhere to the federal rules of evidence, which makes it much easier trying to compare the rulings across the 11 circuit courts of appeals. When I first started looking at this, I had considered looking at appeals at the state level, and then I realized, oh, my God, I have you know 50 state statutes to deal with. And they're all different. What exactly constitutes a felony in in one state may not be the exact same thing in another state, et cetera, et cetera. So I just found it for consistency's sake, uh, going with the United States Circuit Courts of Appeals was uh, the way to go on this particular study. And in this study, you searched uh, approximately a six-year period? Yes. Understand that I did this work in 2016. Okay. And I drew on uh, criminal cases that were decided on merit, and that's essentially that they were either affirmed or reversed. I didn't look at cases where the circuit dismissed them out of hand without considering the the case. 
the cases were identified using LexisNexis, and I searched with the terms computer, computer forensics, chat log, electronic evidence, cell phone, sexting, iPhone, child pornography, digital evidence, computer investigation, GPS, and encryption. I may have missed some, and the data was compiled in the Microsoft Access database and then analyzed using Excel. Got it, yeah. And you were looking for the outcomes, primarily whether they were affirmed, that that is, the Court of Appeals had concluded that the lower court decision was correct and would stand or reversed the, uh, the act of the court setting aside the decision of the lower court, right? Exactly. So while I was searching cases, uh, three categories of appeal became readily apparent over all categories I'm talking about now, search and seizure, sure. evidence presented at trial, and other issues. And what I said to myself was, gee, you know, uh, the digital forensic process has three major components, seizure, acquisition, and analysis, and then reporting. And I even included a a diagram in my paper sort of showing my reasoning for why I did what I did. And parts of the computer forensic process line up very well with seizure and acquisition analysis and reporting. And then there were a lot of, I call them other issues that were used as basis for appeal, such as double jeopardy, Miranda, plain error, prosecutorial misconduct that really didn't seem to fit into anything that had to do with computer forensics. So I sort of set them off to the side and said, let's kind of take them out of the equation here because they really have nothing to do with computer forensics. Yeah. So separate from the computer forensic process. So these are the basis for these appeals. And I would also say that uh, it was more often than not the case that an appeal would have several bases within it, right? Because really, when you're in that situation, you're kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall and hoping something sticks. Sure. Okay. And from this search, uh, you identified exactly 145 appeals, right? Yeah. Well, that was sort of one of the things that I thought was really amazing, that I found 145 cases, and I searched, I mean, I did a lot of searching, and only 145 of the 45,030 appeals and criminal cases through the years 2010 through 2015 involved digital forensics. I thought that that was, to me, astounding. I expected that number to be much higher. Yeah, I mean, given the state of digital evidence, Uh, the rapidly changing prevalence in society of just the use of digital tools, uh, the concern about the validation of tools for law enforcement, and, you know, just the dynamic nature of how evidence is captured and extracted, you would think there would be a lot of basis for appeal. Yes, exactly. So that, that surprised me. Yeah, interesting finding. So it looks like you had a nice distribution across the 11 circuits. What were the findings? What were the high-level summary of the decisions? 91%, just a little over 91% of the cases were either affirmed or reversed for the government. So, in other words, the appeals court found that the lower court had made the correct ruling. In less than 9% of those cases were either affirmed or reversed for the defense. And I will say in those 8.9% of the cases that even in those instances where a appeal was affirmed or reversed for the defense, some other appeal or basis in, you know, some other appeal that was made at the same time was found for the government. Mm -hmm. So it didn't necessarily mean that if you were the defense and you got an affirmation or a reversal, that your client was going free. 
and the type of basis of the appeal. What did you find there? So the basis of appeals, sufficiency of evidence was by far the, um, was the high point, 31%, followed by probable cause, defective warrants, warrantless seizure, and probative value. And then there were probably eight or nine or 10 others that made up very small percentages by themselves. Interesting. Let's just jump into some of this case, uh, these cases. So starting with the decisions reversed for the defense, we have uh, insufficient evidence uh, with United States versus Flyer. Let's talk a little bit about that one. First off, uh, sufficiency of evidence is from a case, Jackson versus Virginia. And that's basically where, instead of the evidence presented at trial, in the light most favorable to the prosecution and determine whether this evidence so viewed is adequate to allow any rational trier of fact to find the essential elements of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. So Andrew Flyer was convicted for attempted transportation and shipping of child pornography and uh, possession of child pornography. And in his appeal, he argued that there was insufficient evidence to establish that he had exercised domain and control over the images recovered from the unallocated space on his hard drive. Alternatively, he also argued that even if he could have been said to have possessed the images before the deletion, no evidence indicated that the possession occurred during the time period charged in the indictment. Basically, he's saying that these images were in unallocated space on his hard drive. He doesn't know how, he got, how they got there. He didn't possess them, essentially, is what he's saying. During its review, the panel from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals noted that the government conceded that no evidence was presented that Flyer knew of the presence of the contraband images in the unallocated space on his computer. They also conceded that Flyer didn't have the necessary forensic software to view the files in unallocated space. Um, and further, there was no evidence that Flyer ever manipulated the evidence, and Flyer never admitted to viewing the charged images. The government did counter that the evidence demonstrated that the charged files were at some point deleted and were sufficient to establish possession. However, the Ninth Circuit panel disagreed. They said the deletion of an image alone does not support conviction for knowing possession of child pornography on or about a certain date within the meaning of the statute. His conviction was uh, overturned. So his conviction was overturned on this. Uh, however, other convictions were affirmed, as you mentioned before, just because of this one. Right. His conviction for possession was reversed, and his conviction for the attempted shipping and possession were affirmed. It's an interesting example because it gives you both, right? It gives you an instance where, where a ruling was reversed for the defense, but like I said earlier, that in and of itself does not mean that the defendant went free. There were still other matters at hand that kept part of the conviction in place. Absolutely. And so moving on, another decision affirmed for the defense, uh, we were talking about United States versus Bershansky. Uh, this is searching of a dwelling, a uh, warrantless search. The big problem with Bershansky is that when they went to serve the warrant, and I, I include this diagram in my slide deck, I think it's so helpful to explain what happened here. It mm -hmm. was a series of essentially row houses that were uh, split level. There was one entrance for one apartment uh, going up a set of stairs, and there was one for a basement apartment going down the stairs. So when law enforcement showed up to serve their search warrant on Berchansky, they were authorized to search apartment two. 
somehow they got confused and searched apartment one. The magistrate clearly had signed for apartment number two. And rather than obtain, rather than saying, hey, wait, time out, we have the wrong apartment here. We need to go back and get this warrant changed. They went ahead and searched the apartment that was not authorized by the warrant. So essentially, when it got to court, it was thrown out because they exceeded the scope of the warrant by searching premises other than the ones that they were authorized to search. Um, sure. And it was also that determined that the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule did not apply. They said, hey, we were operating in good faith here. The court said, I'm sorry, but, you know, you had one address and you searched the other. And the digital evidence in this case was? I believe it was child pornography. Uh, that's what overwhelming evidence at stake in, in all these cases was, was child yeah. pornography. Unlike the two cases we mentioned at the beginning, many of these cases are, are about the seizure of evidence. Uh, so moving towards the decisions affirmed for the government, we have this issue on relevancy with U.S. versus Reynolds. Yes. From the federal rules of evidence, evidence is relevant if it has any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would have been without the evidence. And the fact is of consequence in determining the action. So Donald Reynolds uh, appeals his conviction and sentencing for receipt and distribution of child pornography and one count of possession of child pornography as well. He argued that the expert witness testimony based on historical cell site data lacked relevancy and that the district court erred in admitting this evidence. So what's interesting about this case, the FBI did this particular investigation what they had done is they introduced historical cell site tracking analysis at trial to assist in the determination of who was and who was not at home during the relevant download periods in their investigation. In other words, yeah. they showed that it was Reynolds that was home and not somebody else. Interestingly, the information did not show that Reynolds was absent from the home during the same relevant periods, right? So they really didn't prove that it was only Reynolds' home what they proved was that he was not absent during the time when the downloaded files were in his possession. He was one of four household members, and they were able to demonstrate and show that the other three were away from the household based on their cell use. Yes, exactly. They had to figure out whether it was either of his two adult children, or I'm not sure if it was his spouse or if it was a girlfriend. I'm not sure who the, who the fourth person was, though the case didn't say. And they basically said it was the evidence was probative as to whether each of the four persons who generally had access to a desktop computer was absent from the computer's location while child pornography was downloaded onto that computer. The evidence showed that Reynolds' absence from the residence could not be demonstrated, permitting an inference that Reynolds was the only one out of the four household members who was a residence during the time that the child pornography was downloaded and his conviction and sentence were affirmed by the panel. Really unique use of digital evidence to associate a person's presence with the independent, if you will, downloading of the child pornography. So while that was going on, you show that he was not absent from the house. So it's really a connection between uh, the circumstances there. Fairly interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's putting a person in a place at a particular time and putting them at the keyboard at that particular time. Exactly. So the probative value, one, uh, where um, we're looking at the U.S. versus Ballard, uh, 2011. Probative value. It's also from the Federal Rules of Evidence, basically saying evidence, if it is probative value, substantially outweighed by a danger of one or more of the following, unfair prejudice, 
confusing the issue, misleading the jury, undue delay, wasting time, or needlessly presenting cumulative evidence. Apparently, what you see in a lot of these child pornography cases is an abundance of evidence being introduced to demonstrate over and over again, you know, uh, the accused motivation, the fact that they were doing it over a long period of time, et cetera, et cetera. So Ballard appealed his conviction, and he said the images introduced to trial unfairly prejudiced the jury and that the impact of the images offset its probative value. The court, however, said that the relevant evidence of the images and video was not extrinsic to the crime, but rather was actually part of the actual pornography uh, possessed. And they also noted that Rule 403, the probative value rule, is an extraordinary remedy which the district court should only invoke sparingly and that the balance should always be struck in favor of admissibility. So this is another case where the images were introduced, uh, they're captured images, just to demonstrate that the person had access to these types of images and videos. And and then that presentation of that evidence, what was not uh, prejudicial. Right. It gets to the question of how many do you need to introduce? Two, three, four, five, 10, 20. How many is too many? At what point does the jury get it? And at what point is it, you know, undue influence? Sure. The next uh, area for basis of appeals around authenticity, another rule 901. And in this instance, Adam Leibowitz appealed his convictions for producing child pornography and attempting to entice a child to engage in unlawful sexual activity and challenged the authenticity of printouts that were submitted at trial. So at trial, the prosecution admitted into evidence printed transcripts of chat messages between Leibowitz and a minor with whom he was attempting to engage in illegal sexual activity. In his appeal, Leibowitz argued that the admission of those printouts violated the authentication requirement and federal rule of evidence. The minor, though, who produced the printout of the chat sessions in question testified at trial that these printouts actually accurately represented the conversations he had with Leibowitz, though he could not recall exactly when he produced the printouts. So essentially he did it before, like when, when this was ongoing, he did it so he could show the police later, look, this guy tried to get in touch with me and tried to entice me into a sexual encounter. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting when you think about the focus on technology-facilitated abuse and how victims, potential victims, can document their evidence to showcase to law enforcement, especially with the, just the nature of social media. So that's an, an important area. G- continue. So basically, the uh, appellate court reviewing uh, determined that the district court did not err in admitting the uh, chat session uh, because they said that, the, the, that it was credible. Exactly. The chat session printouts were reflective of what actually happened, and that was entered into evidence in a firm for the government. The next one you focus on is scientific merit with the United States versus Stanley, Paul Stanley. Um, indeed. Stanley appeals his conviction for receipt, transportation, and possession of child pornography, arguing that the district court erred in admitting expert testimony from an agent who conducted the forensic examination of his laptop. He specifically argued that the agent in question possessed insufficient specialized knowledge or skill in the software programs used to extract the data from his computer and failed to offer testimony regarding the reliability of the forensics tools used in the examination. As you might well imagine, there was a rather lengthy wadir as part of this trial, and the court found that this agent had in fact established 
her education, training, experience, and knowledge of the forensic tools and procedures she utilized, as well as a detailed explanation for her use of the forensic software in the particular case. So why did you use this particular tool for this particular evidence? How did you get to it? Where did it come from? How do you know that you got the evidence from where you say you got it from? And during the proceeding, the agent also explained that the tools used to examine the defendant's laptop were acceptable as reliable practice by the Maryland State Police. So here's a case where it's focusing on the expert. Yes, and the court strongly supported the determination by the district court of the agent's competence as an expert and the reliability of their findings. Here's a case where um, it's just one of these challenges with uh, digital evidence in general is about establishing the expertise examiners have uh, with software, with these tools and tool validation. And here's an example of where it was affirmed. Right. I mean, if you can't beat the evidence itself, you know, you go after the person who testified as an expert uh, about the evidence. That's right. So those are really nice examples of the various case law that you identified and the different ways that these basis for appeals were either affirmed or reversed. So let's revisit the, the research questions that uh, you were looking after in terms of, you know, what is the most frequent legal basis for appeals related to digital evidence? For search and seizure related appeals, probable cause was the most common basis of appeal. For evidence presented at trial, uh, the most frequently occurring basis was sufficiency of evidence. And we know that the frequency of appeals reversed for the defense, pretty low. Yeah, it was below 9%. And as I said before, even in those 9%, just because one appeal was uh, reversed or affirmed for the defense, did not mean that, that they were set free or they didn't have to go back to prison, because usually there was some other part of their case that stood. Exactly. Based on the results of the study, can you describe some of the trends in the areas of law that uh, apply to computer forensic, they need further attention? Where do you see this going? To me, the, the, the biggest problem that, that I saw was with regard to the scope of search warrants, and it particularly governs how far the government can search based on a particular factual predicate. So, you know, I suspect that there is a crime being committed here, and I have, you know, the right to search your vehicle. And how far does that search warrant go? Um, there's several cases that have been decided recently that kind of point to how the courts are leaning towards this, and it's Riley versus California and the United States versus Ganias. Basically, the courts seem to be saying, you know, once you go outside the scope of the warrant, that's where you're going to start running into trouble because, you know, you've gone through all this work to put together a search warrant for a magistrate or a judge detailing what you think is going to hold evidence, you know, why, why you think a crime has been committed. Once you go start going outside of that scope, you're on a fishing expedition, and that brings the whole specter of judicial fairness into question at that point. Sure. What about the fact that most of this digital evidence is captured, held in commercial areas? And what types of challenges are presented with law enforcement gaining access to uh, these various platforms, whether it's an app or some other third party? This really didn't come up in, in this particular study. I would have to believe that the, that the issues at hand are um, chain of evidence. How do I make sure that only the people that need to have access to that evidence ever access it or distribute it? Only those that need to know. And then the other one that I thought about is, what happens if one of these places goes out of business? 
or what happens if a city goes bankrupt and can't pay its bills? Who owns that evidence then? These are questions as we move into the cloud environment. How do we, those questions haven't come up before courts or, or even most of our legislative bodies, I don't believe. And, you know, getting back to the original question that you posed here is really what is the impact of digital evidence on prosecution outcomes? And, and you pose a question, is digital evidence underutilized? Well, what's your thoughts about that? Well, it doesn't seem that overall it plays a large role in appeals filed within the U.S. Courts of Appeals, at least in criminal cases. But that doesn't mean that it's not playing a larger role in cases that are actually adjudicated at the circuit level. You, know, you follow what I'm saying? That, yeah. that it would be interesting to look at cases at the U.S. Circuit Court level at trial to find out, A, how much digital evidence is actually being entered into evidence at that phase, and what is the rate of evidence being excluded also, and why is it being excluded? Yeah, that would be really important. And it would seem to me that the two places where it doesn't seem that once evidence is introduced at trial that there are, are a lot of issues in it being authentic in it passing Daubert, the court seems to understand what digital evidence is. The real challenges have come in the search and seizure of evidence. So really, even before the evidence is ever analyzed by a computer forensic examiner is where most of the problems have occurred. And so the question, you know, it was kind of a question to myself, really, was, you know, does digital evidence tend to support previously supported facts of a particular case? Like, Mm -hmm. is it corroborative? Or is it so strong as to overbear any evidence to the contrary? Is it, is it in and of itself conclusive? You know, because one of the things that anecdotally, at least, I've come to understand about digital evidence is that juries tend to see it as confirming motivation, intent, et cetera. Those are the kinds of things that juries are most interested in when determining guilt or innocence, right? Did, yeah. did the person have motive means opportunity? And digital evidence, at least anecdotally, seems to suggest all three of those things. Excellent. What other final thoughts do you have on digital evidence in the courts? What other research would you like to see conducted in this space? I'd really like to look at, it would be much harder to do at the state level, but I think it would be very interesting to compare and contrast across the state and find out in particular places where digital evidence is suppressed and why it's being suppressed. How can we do a better job as criminal justice of seizing, obtaining, and analyzing and reporting on digital evidence such that it's not excluded? I would like to thank our guest today, uh, Mr. Martin Novak, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss the legal issues in the courtroom with digital forensics. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in forensic field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Mike Planty, and this has been another episode of Just Science. In the next episode, Just Science interviews Paul Reedy of 4th Street Global about digital evidence and data stories. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.